1: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest this week is a novelist, filmmaker and Zen Buddhist priest. Ruth Ozeki was born in Connecticut in the 1950s to a Japanese mother and, as she puts it, Caucasian anthropologist father. Despite always wanting to write, she didn't publish her first novel until she was 40 because, in part, she didn't feel entitled to. She needn't have worried. That novel, My Year of Meats, won the Kiriyama Prize and the American Book Award. And her third novel, a Tale for the Time Being, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2013. Her latest, The Book of Form and Emptiness, looks destined to go the same way.
2: Um, the story of a, of a young boy named Benny O, who loses his father when he's 12, and um, is quite traumatized by this. And in, in the aftermath of his father's death, he starts to hear the voices of things speaking to him. And these are just ordinary things in the house, like a running
1: shoe or a Christmas ornament, or you know, a piece of wilted lettuce in the in the fridge. Buddhism has informed Ruth's life just as much as, if not more, than writing. She joined me to run the conversational gamut. We talked meditation, ageing, living through the death of your parents, why objects are so important to us, and why menopause and adolescence have so much in common. Thank you so much for coming on The Shift. Should we talk first about writing? Because you came quite late to writing, really, Mm. didn't you? Yes,
2: yes. I had many jobs and many incarnations before I started writing. But when I was quite young, uh, when I first discovered novels, I kind of knew immediately that that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be a writer. Um, But then I just got distracted during college and after college. And I, for a while, toyed with the idea of going into academia and then sort of shifted course and ended up working in the film and television industry for many years, you know, and all the while I was doing this, working for others and also making my own films, writing was still something that I was always doing, but kind of in the background. And then it was really, I think, through learning how to make films and particularly um, learning how to edit images, right? That's when I really learned about narrative and about plot, you know, and television is a very impatient medium. So you really have to cut to the chase quickly. (laughs) You can't mess around a lot, you know? So it was really through doing that, that I learned you know, sort of how to move a story through time. So when I finally in, I think I was 38, sat down to write my first novel, uh, I suddenly realized that I had some of the skills anyway necessary to do it um, in a way that I, I think I never had before. I'd always felt like, oh, I don't know how to handle story. I don't know how to get story down on the page in a way that, you know, is sort of profluent and moves.
1: I heard you talking on a podcast about writing and you, I think you said that you didn't feel entitled to? Oh, there
2: was of course that. Yeah. You know, I was born in 1956 in the United States on the East coast Mm -hmm. too. And there were not a lot of Asian Americans around in the community that I grew up in. You know, there were no novels that I knew of written by Asian Americans, certainly Asian American women and um, I was in my 20s already when Maxine Hong Kingston started writing um, Women Warrior and I was in my 30s when Amy Tan published Joy Luck Club right so you know I really did not feel that there was a way to write about the things that I cared about in this form I remember thinking when I was quite little I remember thinking you know Well, as a Japanese-American girl, what am I entitled to write? It was haiku. Oh, I can write haiku, you know. (laughs) And and I did. I tried. But I'm very hyperbolic and verbose. I like to use a lot of words. Yeah, you don't
1: write short books.
2: No, I don't write (laughs) short books, right? If only, if only I could. So I was a terrible haiku poet. (laughs) Yeah. So it took a long time. It took a long time to figure
1: that out. Were those the first books where you felt like you saw yourself? It wasn't even
2: about seeing myself, no, because I saw myself in books that I was reading as a child, too. I saw myself in Jane Eyre. I saw myself in Little Women. I remember I was reading a lot of Norman Mailer for some reason, and I saw myself in Norman Mailer.
1: How old were you when you were reading Norman Mailer? I was
2: reading Norman Mailer in junior high school, so I think I was... Um I, I must have been 12 or 13. Um, yeah, I know. You know, who knows what I was really reading, but I think a friend's older brother oh. decided Norman Mailer was really cool, and so we had to read Norman Mailer too, of course, because we needed to be as cool as he was, right? So yeah. we were all reading Norman Mailer. But we were also reading Hemingway, we were reading Faulkner, we were reading Fitzgerald, and yes, I very much saw myself in those, in those books, um, but I didn't
1: know that I could write them.
2: That was the difference. I re- responded to them as a reader, but not as a writer.
1: Uh, it seems- Interesting, isn't it? And what you say about moving the story on, because I think so many people when they first start writing, you've kind of got two chapters and the character's still in the bath, you know? It's like <laughs> Exactly.
2: Exactly. No, that's such a perfect description. And that's what I didn't know how to do until I learned to edit film, until I learned to edit images. You know, the idea that you can cut in a way that would move a character through space and time efficiently and quickly. And I just didn't know about things like, I don't know, montage or camera angles, shifts in points of view or paragraph breaks or, you know, just all of the little tricks that we use in order to get a character from A to point Z. None of those
1: things made sense to me. I am not capable of describing this book, but there's a definite sense of the camera angle shifting from one character to the next. For anybody listening who goes and picks it up, it is a huge book, like 600 pages? It's a 550 or 60 or something like that, yeah. And I won't say you'll whip through it, because you won't, but it's really, really engrossing and you find yourself really captivated by the characters' stories. But also, I can see it all in my head. I can see the library and I can see the flat and the stoop and the... You No, it's all living in my head right now. But if you could just... Tell us a little bit about the story.
2: Sure. Well, it's um, the story of a of a young boy named Benny O who loses his father when he's twelve and um, is quite traumatized by this. And in in the aftermath of his father's death, he starts to hear the voices of things speaking to him. And these are just ordinary things in the house, like a running shoe or a Christmas ornament or, you know, a piece of wilted lettuce in the in the fridge. He doesn't really understand what they're saying at first, but you know, there's a kind of feeling tone associated with the object you know this is a problem for him because his mother Annabelle she loves things she loves objects and she's a collector and you know indulges in a lot of retail therapy and so you know their house is really very cluttered and in fact she definitely has kind of a hoarding problem and so um Benny eventually sort of takes refuge in a large public library where um you know libraries of course are filled with objects um and they're, they're filled with objects who speak, right? His books definitely speak to us, but um, but they, you know, are orderly, you know, they, they stand up neatly on the shelves and, and they speak in their in their library voices. So he finds this to be a very soothing environment. And he meets a cast of characters that sort of denizens of the library, a young woman artist who he falls in love with and a homeless poet philosopher who holds literary salons in the men's washroom and a children's librarian, you know, who's a bit- of a superhero because of course all librarians are superheroes. (laughs) And he also meets a very special talking object. He meets his book and in fact it's the Book of Form and Emptiness. Who he meets there, he starts to hear the voice of this book speaking to him. So the entire Book of Form and Emptiness is actually narrated by the book of form and emptiness right so the the book is narrated by a book and it's set up as a conversation between Benny on one hand And his book. The book is sort of telling Benny's life story. And Benny occasionally interrupts the narrative in order to clarify or to complain about the way the book is telling the story Yes. or, you know, too much sex. Yes, (laughs) too much. He doesn't want to hear about his parents' sex life. So he reprimands (laughs) the book for, you know, there are certain things that a boy should not know about. And that's one of them. So don't tell them that. Um, Mm. and, And so, you know, Benny is kind of not coaching the book, but is sort of listening to this, participating in this narrative. And so together, Benny and his book sort of construct this story of this period of Benny's life when he's hearing voices. He suffers during this time. You know, when he goes to school, his teacher sees him behaving in an erratic fashion and takes him to the school nurse and then eventually he's sent to a child psychologist who diagnoses him with schizoaffective disorder because he's having you know what she deems to be oral hallucinations and so he is sent to a psych ward and he's medicated and his struggles with the sort of psychopharmaceutical very medicalized psychiatric world is very much a part of the story as well and this is something that he and the book are kind of talking about and trying to parse out and understand. And with the book's help, he learns to listen to his voices in a different way. The book points out, and also the poet philosopher points out that, you know, that hearing voices are not, it might not necessarily be a problem if he learns how to hear them and how to interact with the voices. And so little by little, Benny starts to come to a different relationship with his voice hearing, and he finds his own voice in the process.
1: This is the second of your novels that's about an adolescent in turmoil, a tale of time being was too. What is it that interests you about that period of adolescence?
2: You know, both are stories about young adolescents who are struggling with mental health issues and who find some kind of solace in the act of writing and also the act of reading in their relationship with the written word. And, you know, it's an area that interests me because I too was a young adolescent Wasn't struggling with mental health issues. And I think really it was the world of books and writing that saved me. And so even before I knew what I was doing, you know, at first I was writing poetry. um, I was writing short stories, but it was always something I felt compelled to do. You know, it never occurred to me that I could actually become a writer because I didn't really understand that that was possible. But you know, the act of writing stories, it sort of gave my life some kind of meaning. And it was a way out of, you know, the the mental health issues that I'd had when I was 16 or 17. I had what was then called a nervous breakdown and and was um, sent to a psychiatric unit, spent some time there in a locked ward. And so this was an experience. Thinking back on it now, you know, surely there was a different way that they could have dealt with this given all of the other precipitating events that were going on in my life. You know, there was a lot wrong with this treatment modality that the authorities had chosen. But it was also, I wanted to, I think, go back and really, you know, try to remember that time and understand, you know, what it felt like to suddenly be in this world of um, of an institution like that. So I think that's why it's a period of time that was particularly intense for me. And, you know, I think that's why I'm sort of drawn to revisit it.
1: I mean, adolescence is a time of massive turmoil, isn't it? Even without all the additional kind of factors. Adolescence and this point in life, kind of menopause, 50s, Mm. And 60s. Do you think it's a coincidence that the books that you've written at that time of life have been about you reevaluating adolescence?
2: I think about this all the time. Recently, too, uh, and I think during this past year, you know, um, ever since COVID sort of came on the scene and so radically transformed our lives, I find myself responding to things in a way that feels very familiar, and it feels very much like being back in adolescence. The feelings are very very intense. And on one hand, it feels kind of new. I don't know, maybe I was just asleep through you know, the middle period of my life, or I was just too busy and too ambitious and too driven to really pay attention. But there is something, I feel like recently there's a kind of threshold that I've crossed again. And again, I feel like emotionally I'm experiencing life suffering these really basic emotions in a much more intense way. So it's interesting that you should say that. Uh, So I don't think it's a coincidence at all that at this point in my life, and I'm uh, 65 now, that I would be thinking back to the last time when I was having this kind of very intense emotional struggle and sort of putting the pieces together. A book that I've recently read, which is just fascinating. I wonder if it's as popular here as it is in the States, but it's a book called The Body Keeps the Score.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people have talked about that. I haven't actually read it, but it is on my kind of Amazon basket for later, you know. It's an astonishing book, and it really has, in
2: a way, caused me to look back over my life. It's very much about developmental trauma and um, about the ways that young, quite young children are traumatized by quite ordinary things. It's not like wartime trauma. Developmental trauma is just things that happen to a child in the early parts of their life and in adolescence that are traumatizing events and that these traumatizing events are experienced in the body. After my dad died, um, I had this experience. Um, too, where for about a year after he died, I would hear his voice, you know, and it was always when I was doing something like folding the laundry or washing the dishes, you know, something fairly banal. And I would hear him and it was like, he was standing behind me on the right-hand side and I'd hear him clear his throat and then say my name, right? And I'd whip around to look and, you know, he wouldn't be there. And I'd remember again that he had died and feel all of those feelings of grief and sadness again. He was the first parent I lost and his death was very traumatic. You know, I think that the voice hearing was a sort of response to that. And apparently it's not uncommon. People report this with some frequency. So these very physical events, these very physical experiences, which are unshared in this case, right, can result from trauma of various kinds. And so I've really been investigating this through the writing of both of these books. But I think it's also because I am the age that I am, that I I want to try to understand
1: this better, you know. Your experience of losing your parents and clearing out their stuff also informed the book, didn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I think, of
2: course, this is something that that we all will have to do at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, when my parents died, um, I'm an only child, and so I was left with the task of clearing out their house. And they were both born in 1914. They grew up during the Depression, right? And they were very frugal. You know, they really didn't throw out anything, right? Everything could be put to use, you know, and every piece of plastic wrap that they use, they would wash and hang up and dry and use again. You know, the same with aluminum foil. Everything would be carefully washed and flattened and folded and put away. Rubber bands, pieces of string, just all of this kind of stuff, but not just household stuff like that. Also things like from my mother's side of the family, she's Japanese, and she had inherited all of her parents' things. And they were all of these very unusual and beautiful antique Japanese things, you know, often things that I didn't really understand, scrolls and paintings and calligraphy and bowls, ceramic bowls. And I remember there was a box of polished stones. They were flat and mounted on cardboard. And they were beautiful stones that had been polished. And I loved to play with them as a child. And it turns out that these were stones that my grandfather had found in the desert in Santa Fe when he was interned during World War II. And there was a rock polisher at the internment camp. And so he learned to cut and polish stones. And this is one of the things that he did to kind of keep himself occupied and sane during the years that he was interned there. So all of these objects had stories. And that story I happen to know. You know, many of the objects, I, I didn't know their stories. And I remember as I was cleaning them out, you know, of course it's very difficult to throw things out like that. So I remember thinking, I wish this object could, you know, I wish this bowl could talk to me. I wish I could know where it came from. And so I think that was probably the time I started really thinking about objects and the power that they have and how alive they are to us.
1: Did you keep much?
2: I did. I had to throw away some things. I had to throw away a lot. I filled a dumpster, one large dumpster with stuff. You know, it was very painful to do that. My dad, for example, kept, I think he kept every canceled check that he wrote, you know, during his lifetime, right? And each check, you know, had his spidery, beautiful handwriting signed with his name. And shredding those checks was like shredding my heart.
1: It's hard, so, so tough, isn't yeah. it? In the book, the objects talk to Benny, but the book within the book within the book. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a Mary Kondo esque yeah. book called Tidy Magic: The Ancient Zen Art of Clearing Your Clutter and Revolutionising Your Life. Which, at the point you started writing this, which was what eight years ago, yeah. I mean, she was only just taking off, wasn't she? Yeah, she that was. Point?
2: That's right. That's right. She was only just taking off, and it was kind of a whim to put this book within a book, but. It was very interesting to me, the whole Marie Kondo phenomenon, because what I saw her doing was something that in Japan was just kind of part of the culture you know, this idea that we would want to treat our objects with care and respect. And certainly, you know, as a Zen practitioner, this is routinely what we do. All objects are treated with care and respect. And and there's a kind of ritual way of handling everything, right? I was just fascinated by the fact that she was kind of introducing these really simple and beautiful customs to the West, and that people were responding to them. That said something to me, something about the way that she was encouraging us to deal with our possessions. Um, It obviously struck a and I liked that. There was something quite nice about that. It's so much a part of Japanese culture but here I could see that it was different.
1: Yeah, we imbue objects with so much meaning, don't we? Mm -hmm. Some objects. I mean, Annabelle is imbuing some objects with meaning and others, it's just more of a compulsive way of dealing with her grief. And I have to say, I desperately want to start collecting snow globes now. And (laughs) I really don't need any more stuff in my house. And if you read the book, you'll know exactly what I mean. (laughs) Do you have snow globes? Well, that's how this
2: whole thing started. You know, I knew that I'd be writing about things, right? And so the question is, what things should I write about? And so I kind of made a little, rule or a game for myself that when somebody gave me something, I would put it in the book and see what happened, right? So my friend came back from a holiday in Bermuda and brought me back a little, one of those little touristy snow globes with a sea turtle on the inside because she knew I loved sea turtles, right?
1: Snow in Bermuda.
2: I know, I know. It makes no (laughs) sense. But it was just a little snow globe with a sea turtle inside and, you know, another bigger sea turtle kind of on the base. And it was only because I really do love turtles. And she gave that to me and I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'll give it to Annabelle in the book. And I did. And of course, a page later, Annabelle is on eBay collecting snow globes, right? So that becomes kind of the basis of her collection. And a lot of the things in the book kind of entered that way, you know, just a gift that somebody gave me. It was like, oh, what do I do with this I'll I'll put it in the book and see what happens. And it was a way of kind of introducing a little bit of randomness, you know, to the objects that were going to be in the book rather than me kind of thinking about objects and deciding what to put in. It was a way of sort of letting objects from the outside, from my life, just kind of enter the book. So it was It was fun. It turned into kind of a game.
1: What's your own relationship with objects? Mm. Do you have a lot? Do you...
2: I, I always disciplined. Yeah, no, I'm not that disciplined. I wish I were more disciplined. I think I'm sort of aspirationally a minimalist, but I will never get there. I still have a lot of the things that belong to my parents. I don't have children of my own, so it is my responsibility to clear this out, to get rid of everything. I was intrigued by this idea of the the Swedish death cleaning. You know, <laughs> did mm-hmm. you have you heard about that? Yeah, 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 that was kind of intriguing to me as well. So I do try to allow things to move out of my life, but I do have to practice it because it's not my normal inclination. You know, I'm kind of training myself to do that. And again, I'm the child of depression era parents. And so throwing out a perfectly good piece of tinfoil is difficult for me. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I have very clear memories from growing up in the seventies of the time before Christmas, ironing the Christmas paper to get the sellotape off. Yes, To use it again.
2: That's right, that's right. When
1: I was cleaning up my parents' house, my mother had a, a whole box
2: full of Christmas paper that I remember being used year after year after year, you know, throughout my mm. entire childhood, the same Christmas paper was used to wrap the presents under the
1: tree. Yeah, gradually getting a tiny bit smaller as you <laughs> cut the rough edges that's off right. until it just got too small to use. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> So, you became a Buddhist. Is it in 2010? Is that right? That's right. That's right. I was ordained as a Buddhist priest. Yeah. What was it that made you decide to do that? become Buddhist and become a priest more importantly.
2: I think my interest in meditation started when I was very, very young. In fact, the first memory I have as a human being dates back to when I was three and my grandfather, my Japanese grandfather, my grandparents had come to visit us in Connecticut and I remember being sent into the bedroom to wake them up or to call them for breakfast and I remember kind of reaching up and opening the door and peeking into the room and my grandfather was sitting there on on the floor and he was meditating. And I'd never seen an adult sit on the floor before. You know, this was not, <laughs> this was very unusual. And he opened his eyes and he looked at me and our eyes were on level with each other because he was sitting on the floor and because I was small. And I just remember being really startled by this and, you know, sort of running out. And then I think my mother explained that he was meditating, but that of course had no meaning to me at the time. I grew up during the sixties and seventies and everybody was meditating. And so I started becoming interested in that. I was, um initiated into transcendental meditation when I was fourteen. I remember they had a special deal where you you know you could pay. Yeah. <laughs> it was cheaper for if you were a teenager. Kids rate. Right. A kid's rate, yeah, that was yeah. a children's rate. Exactly. I started practicing formally meditation when I was really quite young. You know, and then kind of went in and out of it obviously for years. Again, it, it sort of all goes back to the period of time where my parents were getting old and sick and um, approaching the ends of their lives. And suddenly I realized that they were going to die. And that was uh, really shocking. You know, of course, i would known that, but I'd never known it in that way, Mm. you know. And this is kind of almost archetypical Buddhist story. It's the realization of sickness, old age and death, and the inevitability of sickness, old age and death that makes a person start to practice Buddhism and really take up this practice. And that's certainly what happened to me. And I started meditating quite seriously, first in a Tibetan tradition, and then um, eventually kind of moving back to the Zen tradition that my grandparents had followed. Of course, the difference was is that I was doing this in the in the US and my zen teacher was a jewish guy from Pennsylvania, right? <laughs> so, which was different. But his name was Norman Fisher and and he's in the lineage of um, Suzuki Shindo who's the author of Zen Mind Beginner's Mind and he was really the one who brought this lineage of Zen to the West. You know, I started practicing very seriously with this group, you know, this sangha, you know, with Norman. And, you know, little by little, it just became a part of my life that was just... Clearly so helpful, you know, in dealing with this process of growing older and seeing my parents through the ends of their lives. My mother had Alzheimer's, so we took care of her for quite a while before she died. And that was, of course, very challenging. But, you know, again, just the meditation and the Zen practice really helped. And so I think in 2010, I realized that I wanted to be more a part of the lineage itself. You know, I wanted to help teach. And so I I spoke to Norman about this and, and he agreed. And eventually, yeah, it was in 2010, that he, he finally ordained me. So I don't practice with a Sangha in the way that, that a parish priest would, but being a priest sort of finds its way into everything else that I do. The Zen practice finds its way into my writing practice. It finds its way into my teaching. It's just so much a part of who I am at this point that there's not really a big distinction, you know, between Zen and everything else. Zen is just life.
1: It's the way that I live. Because you wrote a short memoir, didn't you, called The Face, A Time Code. That's right. and you basically spent three hours gazing at your own reflection and documented it, didn't you, when you were 59. <gasps> That's right. And do you think you could have even done that if not for the Buddhism? No, definitely
2: not. I wouldn't have had the patience and I barely had the patience as it was. That was an act of desperation, to be quite honest. I had accepted the commission to write a long-form essay about my face. You know, the editor of this series, they were doing, you know, it was restless books, and they were doing a series called The Face. And they were asking authors, writers, to write these long-form essays about their face. And um, he sent me a quote from a Borges short story that was all about the face. And I, I love Borges. And this quote was very inspiring. And and so the idea was that we were to respond to this quote in our essay. And So I kind of blithely said yes. And then I thought about it and realized what it was that I had agreed to do, you know, to write a long essay about my face. And this suddenly just horrified me. So I put it off and put it off, you know, procrastinated. The deadline came, the deadline went. The editor was sending me sort of polite emails asking me how the essay was coming along. And I was just sort of putting them into the trash. And (laughs) and finally, I realized, no, I am going to have to do this somehow. And I had read an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education written by an art historian who teaches at Harvard. And she described an exercise that she gave to her students, which was simply that she sent them to a museum and they were to choose a piece of art you know, a painting. And they were to sit in front of the painting for three hours. And this was a period of time that she said was uncomfortably long and record their observations as they arose in their minds. And I thought it was a brilliant exercise, a little bit sadistic. Um, And she describes, you know, the, the results of this about how observation over time like that, over this uncomfortably long period of time, would give rise to Um, a kind of seeing that her students would normally never have because they're too impatient. So I thought about this and I thought, well, this might be the way that I could give some structure to this essay. It was an experiment really. And so I did that. I, I put a mirror on my little Zen altar where I normally sit and I had my laptop kind of balanced in my lap. And I just sat there and made this time code, right, of the observations that occurred to me as I was studying my face in the mirror. And, you know, of course, a lot of the observations were like, I'm really tired of doing this, and I really would like a cup of coffee, and why did I decide to do this at all? But then a lot of the observations as I sort of studied my face, it was very interesting because I really could start to see it differently, right? I could start to see my parents in my face, how my eyes had begun to resemble my father's eyes, and my smile had begun to resemble my mother's, you know, and remembering little scars and the accidents, you know, that caused them. And it's true, there was this whole history in my face that I hadn't really noticed before, because normally I don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. I'd reached that age where I really didn't want to look at my face at all. You know, I I wanted to get past the mirror as quickly as possible, right? And so it ended up being a really interesting exercise um, and also brought up a lot of feelings about what does it feel like to be a face and to be a 59-year-old woman with this face that has so much history in it and so many emotional responses connected to the process of aging. So anyway, that's what I mean about it being a kind of structuring device. And so then after I made this time code and finally was released at the end of this three hours, I went back to the observations and sort of fleshed them out and wrote sort of longer episodes based on the memories that that I was having and the thoughts that I was having. And in fact, there's a lot of Zen in that as well, because in Zen literature, the mirror is used and the image of the face comes up quite frequently. And so I was bringing that kind of stuff in as well.
1: Uh, I love your description of the face as a time battery.
0: Mm.
2: And that was Jennifer Roberts, the art historian. That was her term. You know, she she talks about paintings as being time batteries. And certainly I think that's very true about our faces. And it's astonishing to me too, because I remember after this uncomfortably long three-hour period where I finally had finished this task that I'd set for myself. I was in New York and I went outside and it was a beautiful spring day. And I went to Tompkins Square Park in the East village got myself an iced coffee and went and sat on a bench in Tompkins Square Park. It just looked at the faces of all the people. The park was filled with people that day because the weather was so lovely. And I just remember looking at all of their faces, you know, and thinking it's just astonishing. Everyone has a face. <laughs> and that we all have a face and that we all have these very complicated relationships with our faces and with all of the people that are in our faces, you know, that live inside of our faces. Yeah, these very, very complicated relationships. And that just was a stunning moment. I remember thinking we don't really, really ever look at each other that way.
1: No, it's so true. I was intrigued. You said, in the introduction, you said, menopause wreaks havoc with a face's sense of self. (laughs) Has spending three hours looking at your face changed that for you? Changed your sense of self and your relationship with your face? It
2: did. It did. And I think I would need to do it again. That was already six years ago. And my face has changed a lot because this is a very dynamic period of life, you know, where in the same way during adolescence, we change so much from say 10 to 15 or from 15 to 20, or the changes are sort of rapid and cascading, the changes to our bodies and faces. The same thing happens, you know, in, I think, post-60 period, right? And it's hard to keep up with that right? It's hard to keep up with, you know, our feelings about that. You know, I actually feel like at this point, my face has changed quite a bit from six years ago when I did this exercise. And so I'd almost need to do it again, but it it did change my relationship to my face. I felt a lot more intimate with my face, you know, and, and, um, I also felt that I could see my parents in my face so clearly. Oddly, too, you know, I was there when both my parents died. I remember their faces very clearly, what they looked like when they were lying on their deathbeds. And so I could almost see that in my face as well. You know, it was almost like a glimpse of the future. And oddly, I found that very comforting. I mean, death is obviously something that's quite frightening. But having been there for my parents when they died, and then sort of studying my face, you know, and and really understanding a little bit more clearly how it was aging, right? I realized in a way that I'd be joining them. And that was not a bad feeling. That was a kind of oddly comforting feeling to me. So that was another little kind of insight that arose.
1: One thing that you talked about in the memoir is the notion of vanity and that an old woman's vanity is either sad or unseemly or even evil.
2: Oh, well, I was talking about fairy tales and the way yes, old, of yeah, course, yeah. Yeah. the way our culture is, positions old women. And I was thinking particularly, I think, at that point of Cinderella. It was Snow White. Snow White. Snow yeah. White, right. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Yeah. And about how the evil stepmother, her aging vanity is looked at as a, you know very destructive and evil force. Right. You know, what kind of message is that sending? So yeah, I mean, that was something that I was certainly thinking about. And I realized too, I think that the older I got in a way, the less vain I was, but it wasn't because I was really less vain. I think it was more that I just didn't want to deal with it. You know? <laughs> I, it was almost, yeah, it was a kind of aversion. It was just like, oh, what's the point? Yeah. It was a kind of almost laziness and just giving up. But the vanity is there. I mean, I, I think the vanity is always there, right? We're yeah. we're concerned with how we look. We're sitting here on Zoom looking right now. At and, ourselves. Right. Yeah. Right. And we're sitting here on Zoom and I'm realizing, like, oh my God, my hair looks terrible. You know, how no, did I it's how, did I, how did I leave the house looking like this? <laughs> <laughs> and that's I think really interesting too. All of the Zoom stuff that we're doing now, we spend so much time looking at our faces or pretending not to look at our Yeah,
1: I'm very assiduously looking at your face.
2: (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly. But I'm always aware when I'm talking to somebody how their eyes are kind of flicking up to the corner of the screen from time to time just to kind of check, right? And it's quite distracting. So um, the Zoom has given us a whole other relationship to our faces and our appearance. It's also flattened us. We're kind of two-dimensional now, right? And we only Mm -hmm. exist from the shoulders up, right?
1: (laughs) It's like somebody I was talking to the other day they said they had met someone they worked with, they'd worked with for a year, but they'd met him for the first time. And they just had no idea that he was going to be six foot six. Yes, yeah, right. Of course yeah. not. Why would you know that? Yeah. Right, right. No idea. Right. So it's funny. really very strange, isn't it? It is. not it its i better ask you the questions I always ask before we uh, get thrown off. Mm. What's your emotional age? Oh, what a
2: great question.
1: The first thing that came to mind
2: was 17 but I think that's because I've been spending so much time looking back at my adolescence. So I'm very aware of the 16-year-old, 17-year-old inside me who's still alive and kicking. But there's also the 65-year-old who is in conversation with her. So I, I think I'm kind of straddling my real age and just starting to learn what it is to be 65. But I'm very aware of the, you know, of the young person there too.
1: If you could recommend one book what would it be?
2: Uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. It was a kind of revolutionary book for me and I read it recently and in a way, it kind of changed the way that I think about my life.
1: I'm definitely getting that out of the to be read list and onto the actually read it list. What one piece of advice would you give younger women? I guess it was a piece of advice that was given
2: to me when I was fretting over an author photo at one point. And somebody just pointed out to me that you're going to look back on this photo of yourself and you're going to realize how beautiful you are. And it's astonishing to me how when we're young, we do not see how beautiful we are. We just simply don't get it. All we can look at are the flaws or our perceived flaws. Um, So if there's one thing I could wish for anyone, you know, at any age, is just to appreciate the reality of who they are and the beauty that's there and to to see past all of you know the conditioning that culture um saddles us with
1: you know it would be life changing if we could wouldn't it it'd be it? life changing if we could
2: yeah yeah it really would
1: who is your old bird role model so an older woman who uh-huh. inspires you
2: oh let's see there's a zen buddhist nun named Setouchi Jakucho. Jakucho is her name. And she was kind of the model for the great grandmother in A Tale for the Time Being. And she must be about, she's over a hundred, I think, by now. And she became a Zen nun when she was in her fifties. And she's a novelist, had a wild youth was, you know, known for her love affairs. And and she's just a political activist and a very, very funny, humorous, straight-seeing, straight-talking person. And I I just think she's wonderful. So she would definitely be a role model. What's your superpower? Ah, my superpower. I think my sort of obsessive tendency that when I start something, I become hyper-focused on it. And this can be a problem, like all superpowers, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, it it can really be a problem. But it also keeps me engaged in a project like writing The Book of Form and Emptiness, you know, and um, over an eight year period, it allows me to return to it every day, even if the writing is going badly. Yeah, it's that sort of completionist, hyper focus, obsessive drive that um, keeps me going and then when I finish a project like now I just feel a little bit lost and immediately I'm looking around for something else to hyper focus on
1: (laughs) and lastly how many fucks do you give how many fucks do I give
2: what a great question um I think many 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 fucks yeah 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 I kind of think that you just have to you have to care Um, you have to care and also you have to be able to shrug it off too so either multitudes or none (laughs) again yes (laughs) somewhere in between there or fluctuating back and forth (laughs) it's a great question
1: (laughs) that's brilliant thank you it's been such pleasure to talk to you
2: thank you so much Sam I hope we can really meet face to face and in person one of these days I know I'm glad we were able to do this
1: thank you so much thank you so much Uh and thank you for your book as well it's incredible oh
2: Thank
1: you as we well.
2: All right, thank you
1: so thank much. Thank you Sam. so much. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift: How I Lost and Found Myself After Forty, and you can too. Is out now in paperback. See you next time. Hold
0: up.